Okay, let's talk about Plutarch's lives. So Plutarch writes, uh, in, in his book, he writes a very brief, brief biological comparisons between the men of ancient Greece and the men of ancient Rome. He's basically writing comparisons between these great men. And so these men were some of the bravest people who had ever lived. Uh, and they were chosen by Plutarch from among their peers as some of the most faithful and courageous of men. And uh, let's think about these men for a second. These men were totally devoted to the study of religion and spirituality. They had been forced to hide in caves by their enemies. They were forced to run into desert hideouts to live in disguise for decades And many of them had one mission, and that was to die for their faith and to glorify their God or their gods. So the acts of these martyrs and the deeds of these martyrs brought the ideas and the teachings of their faith into the lives of hundreds of millions of people in every nation. And their spiritual warfare, despite being small in number and many times being far weaker than their enemies, they oftentimes overpowered even the strongest and most powerful of nations. Okay, that's some pretty, that's pretty grandiose descriptions of these people, right? And these types of descriptions could apply to many different groups today, right? For example, it could describe Christian martyrs of the first and second century, uh, or it could describe the terrorist attacks and the suicide bombers of this past century, right? So if we listed their virtues, Christian or Muslim, the lists may look very similar. They may be very religious. They may be very patriotic, courageous, spiritually like-minded, zealous, cunning, selfless, persevering, fearless, and heroic. All of these would be fitting adjectives for either column. But if we were to set a Christian martyr besides an Islamic martyr and analyze their motives... Uh, as expressed in their lives and their deeds, they would look very different, would they not? Yeah. So people may share the same virtues on the surface, but their virtues may be very, very different when we examine them closely. So in Plutarch's lives, this Greek philosopher, Plutarch, has many of, uh, he set many of the greatest men of ancient history side by side with one another so that we can look at how the ancient pagans viewed virtue and so that we can really think about what virtue really is. Okay? So who was Plutarch? So Plutarch was a Greek philosopher. Uh, he was also a priest and he was a politician. And he lived during the the heyday of the Roman Empire. Uh, But he was a Greek living in Greece during this time of the Roman Empire. So he was very faithful to some of the old Greek customs and the ways of life. And and he wasn't entirely living as a Roman, so to speak. Okay, He was a Roman. He lived in the Roman Empire, right? But he kind of held on to some of his, uh, his old Greek customs and Greek habits, okay? And uh, anybody remember the year he was born? I'm not good with dates. Or uh, around the time he was born? Hmm. Was he born in 1500 AD? Yes. No. no. Was he born 500 BC? Yes. No. 
When was he born? No, not even close. Y'all should know generally the time that we're talking about. Uh, no, very closer, closer. He was born the year A.D. 46. A.D. 46. Yeah, so that's only about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And he lived the majority of his life in Chironia to the northwest of Athens, Greece. And he lived just east of the famous religious center of Delphi. Now, as you've read in some of your books so far, have you all heard of the articles or the oracles of Delphi? Yes, so Delphi is right around where uh, Plutarch lived. And Plutarch had a diligent and intense devotion to the study of philosophy. And his love of peace and quiet and, and the love of his homeland and the love of small town living uh, tells us that he lacked the selfish ambition that drove most men to pursue the wealth and fame of the Roman Empire. Uh, instead, because he could have made a lot of money teaching philosophy in Rome. He could have, made a, he could have had a really uh, lucrative lifestyle uh, with all that he knew and all in his giftings in teaching philosophy. But he chose not to do that. He liked the hometown, small town life. And so he stayed in his hometown. And, uh, but instead of pursuing all of the, the Roman avenues of getting wealthy in the big city, he held on to his Greek heritage and his quiet hometown life. And Plutarch enjoyed a, a seemingly active and pleasant life during the, one of the most uh, glorious days of the Roman Empire, all the way up until his death in A.D. 120. Now, Plutarch was the follower of the teachings of Plato. Plato, And he believed that studying philosophy and serving one's country was the most important work uh, a human being can do with their lives. Studying philosophy and serving one's country. And he praises men in his book who embark on these kinds of activities in a lot of what he wrote. And so with this picture, with Plutarch's idea of the ideal man, it shouldn't surprise us that all of the men that Plutarch studied in the lives, in Plutarch's lives are statesmen, means they're government officials, they're generals, they're lawmakers, uh, and folks like them, philosophers, those type of people. And in uh, one of Plutarch's other essays, he argues that every man's life is made up of three parts. So the first part is his birth. And what does his birth comprise? It comprises, in his mind, who your parents are, uh, your gifts that you've been given to your mind and your body, and the opportunity or the opportunities that you get in life. That's all under birth. Who your parents are, what gifts uh, has the gods given you in mind and body, and the opportunities that you get in life. That's the first one. That's all under birth. And number two is education. Education. Basically, his training and the development of his gifts. And number three uh, is his work. What deeds he performs in his life. These three things, according to Plutarch, are the main parts of every man's life. Now, while nobody has control over who they were born to or 
uh, or um, <clears throat> where they were born, Plutarch argues that in spite of where you're born and in spite of who your parents are, you can be educated to develop all of your gifts and you can uh, go after enough opportunities. There will be enough opportunities to come your way to overcome all of the obstacles of your birth in order to live a virtuous life. And so to Plutarch, the key is education. Education. And why did he believe that education was the key to success? Why do you think he believed that? When someone believes that education is the key to success, what do they believe about man's heart and the essence of man? That it can be changed, that his nature can be changed, and they don't have to sin. Yeah, very, very good. Very close. Yeah, he doesn't believe that man has fallen. He doesn't believe that man is evil by nature, as the Bible plainly tells us. So Plutarch, he, he instead he believed that man doesn't really know what is good, and he simply just needs to be taught. He's a blank slate. We all come into this life as blank slates, and we don't know what good is. We don't know what bad is, and we need to be taught. Above all, he needs to be educated. And what does the Bible teach that we need to be? Instead of educated, we need to be regenerated. Yeah, that's the big difference. No, we don't need to be educated. We do need to be educated. But secondarily, most importantly, we need to be regenerated. So in our study of Plutarch's lives, we are going to use his three elements to discuss and to judge the virtue of the famous men of the ancient world. You might remember what those three virtues are. I just said them. Uh, Number one. Birth. birth. Number two. Education. Number three. Deeds. Deeds. That's right. Very good. Very good. So we're going to use all three of those elements to discuss and to judge the virtue of these famous men of the ancient world. And keeping these three elements in mind uh, will help us in analyzing Plutarch's comparisons. And maybe we can give some of our own comparisons. Okay, so during Plutarch's day, his works really weren't read all that much. Um, He wasn't even read for much of the first 500 years after he died. He was not popular. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, you can. So he wasn't popular at all. That really wasn't because he was hated or anything. Uh, I just don't think he was known. So when he lived, his writings were only read by his students and by his friends and probably by his mom. Oh, what a great job, Plutarch. You've done such a great job with your writing. You know, but they didn't seem to have much impact beyond that. You know, how, how many of you know your mom loves everything you do? Right? That's just something that goes with the territory. So it was probably his mom, his dad, and his brothers and sisters, and a few family members uh, that, wrote, that read what he wrote. But he didn't seem to have much impact outside of that. But the book actually became popular much later among the students of the Renaissance in the 13th and 14th centuries when the study of Greek and Roman literature came back to life throughout Europe. Think about that. When was Plutarch alive again? He was born in AD 46, AD, and he died in 120. But his works were not read until 
the 13th and 14th centuries. How many, what, what, is, the, what is the numbers of uh, the 13th century? The, well, it's, well the, when I say the 21st century, it describes the 2000s. No. The 13th century or is the 1200s. Think about that. Almost 1,200 years after uh, he was alive did his books actually start to be read by a large number of people. Just goes to show you what, you, what you do may seem insignificant sometimes in your own life, but you never know who is going to be impacted by what you do and what you say uh, sometime down in the future. And I think that's a good lesson. So today, Plutarch is studied for many different reasons. Many students love to read his biographies for their exciting accounts of uh, the great deeds of all of these ancient famous men. Uh, Historians read the work of Plutarch to gather details about the lives and times of these men for writing their own history books. And philosophers, of course, they read Plutarch. He's a philosopher, after all. They read Plutarch's writings because, uh, for his ideas about life and death, the gods, good and evil, what makes men happy, those sorts of things. Uh, rhetoric students also read Plutarch to, to imitate his writing style. So many of the world's greatest writers, philosophers, rulers, and historians have been greatly affected by reading Plutarch. So when did Plutarch write uh, his, his, um, his lives? When did he write? He, well, he wrote this in what we call the Silver Age of Roman literature, which lasted from about A.D. 15 to about A.D. 160. And so is silver like the best age that there is? No, there's one better. What's, what would be the better age? Golden. The golden age. Right, so you notice I said Silver Age. So that must mean there was an earlier Golden Age of Roman literature. And that included Virgil, Ovid, Livy, and Horace. And at that time, the Golden Age of Roman literature ended with the death of Emperor Augustus. And the age that came after, though very, very good, the Silver Age was forever destined to be the second best, silver compared to gold. And so in the Silver Age, Plutarch wrote with guys like Seneca, Petronius, and Tacitus. And in the Roman cities, the moral excellence of the Augustan Age was decaying. They were in a moral decline. And the conservatives, like the old line Roman conservatives, those who are wanting to conserve the old morals and ideals of Roman life, Uh, like Tacitus, for example, in his time, he began to write very pessimistically about the events that were going on during his time. Uh, But Plutarch, on the other hand, was living in the country. So you don't really hear about all the drama that goes on in the big cities when you live in the country, right? So he he wasn't all around the troubles that were happening in the cities. So in a way, his writings were way more positive and many people seem to enjoy his writings a lot more because they were positive. And so Plutarch's lives uh, compares the lives of the greatest Romans to the lives of the greatest Greeks. And living in a time when the histories of Rome were written, 
That suggested that the Roman Empire was the nation of nations. No one can beat Rome. Rome was the greatest, just like Persia thought they were the greatest. Uh, and they, were, they thought that they were destined by the gods to be the empire without end, as Virgil wrote. But Plutarch didn't share that opinion entirely. He was of the opinion that while Roman achievements were very great, uh, they really, in, in essence, weren't that much greater than the Greeks whom he loved and who went before them. So he wanted to compare the two to see who was really greater. Were the Romans greater or the Greeks greater? So let's talk about the worldview behind Plutarch's lives for a moment. So in America today, we can compare some of the decline in America to what was going on in Rome too uh, back then. And, and there's so, there was so much moral, immoral and ungodly behavior uh, in our world that has been publicly accepted and even embraced that even when we see something not totally and utterly wicked, we call it good, right? That's how it is in America today. You understand what I'm saying? In America, there's so much immorality, there's so much ungodliness uh, that's been publicly accepted by our society uh, that when we see something that's not totally and utterly wicked, we call it good, right? Uh, many Christians are, are really happy to hear that an unmarried teenager wants to deliver her baby, and, can, and they consider it this act of moral courage because you know, we have heard of so many thousands of mothers choosing to abort pregnancies year after year. Um, we call that good. And while it is good to some degree that, the, that she's not going to kill her baby, is it altogether good? No. No, she's unmarried. No, she committed the sin of fornication. Um, think about this. A new movie comes out, and it only has a few curse words, and it only has a few bad parts. Uh, <clears throat> so we say it's good, and we can watch it. Uh, what about a pro athlete? A pro athlete talks about God as, as God helped me get those rebounds and helped me score those baskets. And the Christian thinks that this guy also must be a Christian because he mentioned God that one time. See, the moral relativism that is plaguing our culture right now can be very difficult to sense. It's very difficult to sense it. What is moral relativism? Can anybody tell me what that means? We've discussed this before. Moral relativism. Isn't it like um, it, uh, something's good or bad depending on uh, what the culture thinks? Like, it's not always the same. It changes throughout uh, how the culture changes. Right, right, exactly, exactly, yeah. It's the idea that all criteria of judgment is relative to the individuals, and it's relative to the situations involved. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for this culture may not be right for that culture. So, uh, and our, our world is plagued with this. Our, our nation is plagued with this. So this moral relativism can be even more difficult to fight against since we breathe it in every day. Everywhere we go, we're confronted with this idea of moral relativism. And so we may find ourselves calling things good only because they're not as bad as other things. Does that make sense? 
we, we can grow comfortable with this kind of thinking and our judgment can easily lose its Christian sense of right and wrong. But God says that it's not the culture and it's not individual man, it's not collective man either that determines what's right and wrong. Who, what uh, standard do we go to uh, to determine right and wrong? What's, what standard do we go to in order to determine right and wrong? Right, the scriptures, the Bible. Right. And the same thing, when we read Plutarch, the same idea of moral relativism can kick in when we read pagan authors like Plutarch. So, you know, relatively speaking, Plutarch was a good guy, right? I mean, he's better than Nero, who burned Christians as torches in his garden for parties, right? Plutarch was religious. He was pro-family. He was... Uh, he supported prayer in school. He was pro-guns. I'm just trying to throw modern things out there. He believed, of course he believed he wasn't perfect and he was growing as a human being and, and he, he may have believed the historical facts that Jesus died on the cross. He probably heard that news in some, in some way. He lived shortly after Jesus lived and, and died and rose again on this earth. But at the end of the day, we have no evidence to show that Plutarch was a Christian. Plutarch was a pagan. He was a Platonist idolater who did not know the Father, the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. Plutarch, to my knowledge, was never baptized. He never went to church. Neither did he honor the Word of God as the only rule to direct us uh, how we may glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He didn't do that. Uh, even further, the good that he did do, he took all of the credit for it. And he never gave glory to God as the source of all of those good works. You know, ideas have consequences. And Plutarch praises many men and their virtues. But what are those virtues? Are they Christian virtues? And should we as Christians imitate these pagans in their virtues? Something to think about. First of all, Plutarch is working with a pagan worldview. So many of the things we've learned here at school would be entirely foreign to him. He would not understand any of it. He doesn't understand that when God created all things, he said that they were all good. He doesn't know of a Garden of Eden. Uh, he doesn't know of a serpent. He doesn't know of Adam and Eve. He doesn't understand or know the fall of man. He doesn't understand God's promise to save sinners by sending his son into the world. Uh, he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is going to return from heaven to judge all of mankind. Uh, he doesn't know or believe in the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't believe that God came as a man in the Incarnation. And because of Plutarch's religious beliefs, he is in an entirely different world from Christians. And his ideas and his behaviors are affected by it. Okay. Second, Plutarch's view that a man... Uh, can be made good through education is absolutely false. False. And I know that firsthand, right? Just because you're educated in the school doesn't make you good, right? A man is corrupted in his heart. He's corrupted in his mind. And in his natural ways, he despises God and his law. So man not only fails to do the good that he doesn't understand, He's also unable to do the good that he can understand. And many times he just chooses to do evil anyway, even though he knows 
uh, what is good, and he knows the happiness that will ensue uh, as he does those good works. But what does he do? He still does evil. Furthermore, the good that he does never comes close to the perfection that God commands. So in all of his works, he falls short of the glory of God. And, and he is ultimately, ultimately accepted by God because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is merciful and he desires to forgive and to renew his people uh, as in their repentance. So education is good. I'm not totally knocking education. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be here in front of you today. Right? Education can teach people what is good. Education can teach people what is true and what is beautiful and all of that. But education cannot make us love those things. And it cannot give us the wisdom to do them. Education falls short in that. So only regeneration can make us love the Lord and can make us love the true, the good, and the beautiful. Okay, Education in and of itself can't make us do that. It can't give us wisdom to live our lives for the Lord. All right, third, Plutarch's idea of a noble man is one who achieves great things in the world. It's not too different than the view we have these days. Uh, It's the same view we find on TV. It's the same view we find on social media. It's the same viewpoint (coughs) we find in in magazines. He shows us men like uh, Theseus and Romulus, who were the founders of these great cities like Athens and Rome. He shows us these men. He praises Lycurgus as the father of the Spartans. He praises uh, Poplicola as the man of great power who uses his power for good and dies happy. And so in the eyes of men, these are the great men of the earth. But we know that God does not see man as man sees himself, right? All of these men on the surface may appear very impressive to other men. But when their lives are really put under scrutiny, when their lives are really put under the microscope, we are going to see that they were guilty of all kinds of idolatry and wickedness. These men who are viewed by their their culture as so noble and heroic, they were filled with envy. They were filled with hatred, malice, deceit, adultery, divination, greed, and even cosmic treason. And all of that was in, in the service of idols, not the true and living God. And so our Lord's words apply to these pagan heroes and those that admire them. Luke 16, 15 says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So all of these lofty works that these Romans and these Greeks did, if, if, they, uh, if they're put under the scrutiny of God's law uh, and, and uh, God's judgment, you're going to see that what they exalt, God finds as an abomination. So we don't need to guess at what motivations pagan men uh, do all these things, right? We know that most, we know what drives our actions most of the time, right? What drives our actions most of the time without the Lord? Is it the, is it the uh, opinions of God or the opinions of man? Yeah, opinions of man, right. And so 1 John 2, 16 and 17 teaches us the vanity of the pagan world. Uh, John says this, For all that is in the world, 
the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So man's duty to God is obedience to his commands, right? Uh, With the Holy Spirit, relying upon his help for the glory of God's name. And God's will here is summed up in the prophet Micah. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And Jesus summarized all of the law and the prophets in just two commands. Can anybody give me those? Uh, obey God. With, I mean, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor. Exactly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And if we are faithful to keep this as the test of, our, of the lives of these pagan men as we read them, what good will they be to us at all? Right? It seems like we're putting these men in a pretty impossible standard. Why even read these guys? If, you know, they're not, they're pagans, they don't do anything to the glory of God. Why, if, if this is the standard, why even read anything about anybody that's outside of the Bible? Right? And, and uh, a lot of people do, a lot of Christians think uh, that this is a waste of time to read Plutarch. And they don't believe that looking at these men is any good at all. And it's a waste of time to study them, and they disregard them. Um, and then there are those Christians who fail to distinguish their false virtue and their false righteousness with true biblical righteousness, the, the kind that God defines. And so if we use the measurement found in God's law, we are going to quickly find many failures in these so-called noble men who rarely honor even the least of the Lord's commandments. But if someone, but think about us though, if someone puts all our deeds in a book, uh, people may say the same thing about us at times, right? Would you want anybody reading a, reading a book about your life a thousand years later? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I would mind. Not sure. Not sure. Yeah. It's too, too early to care. tell, huh? I probably would. You wouldn't care? At the moment, I can't tell if they'd be interested or exact Or bored. Yeah. For sure. Like, wow, this is it? Yeah. This is everything? Yeah. Well, by God's grace, hopefully that'll change. You guys are all still really young. So anyway, um, these men that Plutarch writes about, they have an outward form of religion and goodness. But they only appear good only when they're considered uh, in comparison with more wicked men. It's like what we do uh, earlier with our movies or with, um, oh man, what was the other example I gave? Um, I can't remember now. Well, we'll just go with that. So with our movies, what do we say about movies? Oh, it's a good movie. It only said that, it only blasphemed and said the Lord's name in vain three times. And it had a couple of bad scenes that you have to skip. But that wasn't the whole movie, so it was decent. Right? We, seem to, we have a tendency to do the same thing with these men that Plutarch wrote about. You know, they won't, um, of course, uh, they won't appear good at all if we compare it to the Bible standards. But if we look at these men with biblical glasses on and we ask whether their lives were pleasing to God, then we're going to quickly see that their so-called virtue isn't a real thing. And so... <clears throat> So is it? So does that mean we should just? I changed my mind. Let's just put the books back. Forget about it. Sure. 
Sure, I know. Not no, but I'm talking about for the for the motivations I'm giving. No. Is there any good that we can get out of reading this? Yes. What do you think that is? Know what not to do. Know what to do, but for different motives. I mean, many of these men did some great, what we would call great things, right? They stood up to injustice. They looked after the welfare of their neighbor and helped their fellow man. But the problem with that is the reasons why they do it. Did they do it to, above all, honor the Lord Jesus Christ in their works? They did it to honor themselves and to lift themselves up. So I think it's okay. You know, it's good for us as Christians to know our enemies, to know the pagan mind and how it works, and to know how pagan men and women deceive themselves into thinking that they're good so that we can help them, so that we can defeat these uh, false ideologies and these false teachings and really show them, well, by God's standards, you're not good at all, even though you know, you've helped a lot of old ladies across the street. You're not good at all. But here is the way you can be good. You can be perfect as God is perfect by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and, and living and serving Him, living for and serving Him. But if we, if we don't, um, if we look at these men with biblical glasses on and we ask whether their lives are pleasing to God, we can do that with any pagan person. If we put our biblical glasses on and look at their lives and see if they were pleasing to God, we're going to quickly see that their virtue was not real. And it's folly to believe that your virtues have any uh, rightful standing before a holy God. Uh, David shows this kind of folly of of the so-called mighty men as he rejoices over his defeated enemy. He says this in Psalm 52, verse 7. It says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So basically, when we boil all this down, we can say that because the deeds of these pagan heroes were not done out of faith towards the living and true God, for the ends that he has made known and from the motive of love to God and man, then they are not righteous men. And we must be faithful to judge them rightly. So at the end of the day, are we going to judge these men uh, as the great men that Plutarch says they are? No. No, probably not. We're going to say they did some good things, but they're not inherently good or righteous in and of themselves. Okay? Let's pray and ask God as we read Plutarch over the next couple weeks to help us see these things more clearly. Heavenly Father, I thank you for... uh, giving us your word. I'm thankful for you uh, giving us the standard of truth and the standard of right and wrong. And we don't have to look to more relativism to try to, uh, to know what is good and bad because we can see it clearly in the Bible. Father, help us as we read Plutarch's lives to be discerning and to know what not to do and to know what motives we shouldn't have um, as we uh, change the world uh, like these men did. Father, help us in all that we do, all of the great things that you have set before us to do, above all, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever and not glorify ourselves. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.